I'm Carrie Fountain, and this is Just to Say, where we talk to poets about the poems they make and the poems they love. Poetry's about anarchy, it's about mystery, it's about dreams, it's about, you know, the unknown. I made myself anew in poetry. The poem invites the world to come celebrate. I'm Natalie Diaz, and this is my poem, From the Desire Field. I don't call it sleep anymore. I'll risk losing something new instead, like you lost your rosen moon, shook it loose. But sometimes when I get my horns in a thing, a wonder, a grief, or a line of her, it is a sticky and ruined fruit to unfasten from, despite my trembling. Let me call my anxiety desire, then. Let me call it a garden. Maybe this is what Lorca meant when he said, Verde, que te quiero verde. Because when the shade of night comes, I am a field of it, of any worry ready to flower in my chest. My mind in the dark is una bestia, unfocused, hot, and if not yoked to exhaustion beneath the hip and plow of my lover, then I am another night wandering the desire field, bewildered in its low green glow, belling the meadow between midnight and morning. Insomnia is like spring that way, surprising and many-petaled, the kick and leap of gold grasshoppers at my brow. I am struck in the witched hours of want. I want her green life, her inside me in a green hour I can't stop. Green vein in her throat, green wing in my mouth, green thorn in my eye. I want her like a river goes, bending, green, moving, green, moving. Fast as that, this is how it happens. Soy una sonambula. And even though you said today you felt better, and it is so late in this poem. Is it okay to be clear, to say, I don't feel good? To ask you to tell me a story about the sweet grass you planted and tell it again or again until I can smell its sweet smoke leave this thrashed field and be smooth? Natalie, tell me where this poem came from. Well, one is, it's a lot about like my anxieties and I struggle a little bit with anxiety and I have since I was a child and I've been really lucky in poetry to to make some of the friendships that are a part of my adult life now that are you know of course a part of poetry but that have also just become a part of my daily life Um, and one of those friendships uh, began with Ada Limon and you know who's an incredible poet and more importantly for me is like she's someone I love she's a friend uh, a sister and she and I have had you know we we are still doing it actually we we've been writing back and forth and somewhere between the letter and the poem that you see on the page is is the space our conversation has existed in which i think is actually where where poetry exists it's it's not necessarily what the result is on the page but it's almost this letter you're writing to yourself or to the world or you know this thing that you have questions for or of and this was a poem letter intention maybe is a better word that i kind of flung out there uh, toward Ada. And, you know, she and I had talked a lot about um, some of our anxieties and some of our worries. And I think we question a lot. Um, I mean, I know we question together a lot what what purpose language has in the context of some of these, you know, things much larger than poetry that poetry tries to handle. 
this was my way of asking toward that and toward her about about some of my worries and, and things. I also know from reading the series that in the poem that precedes this one, the poem from Ada written to you, or the poem that Ada has written pre- that precedes this poem, she she asks the question, are you sleeping, right? So mm-hmm. I love that, it, you know, the poem begins with, with this wonderful answer. And as someone who has also struggled with um, anxiety and especially with insomnia on and off throughout my life, I just feel like I feel this poem so deeply. <laughs> uh, the, the lines, insomnia is like spring that way, surprising and many petaled, the kick and leap of gold grasshoppers at my brow. I've just been waiting for that line of poetry to describe the experience of existing in a state of, you know, in the middle of a, of a period of insomnia. It's just such a perfect way of describing it. Yeah, I, and I, I think I'm really interested lately in, in, I mean, I think we're all interested in language, of course, but just in, you know, I, I think I'm less interested in the failure of language, which is one thing I think I began poetry with, you know, that gap between what I feel and what I could ever mean with a word or a phrase or... Um, and and I think I'm really interested in in trying to make language work instead. Like, how can I make it work? And so, what if I quit calling it anxiety, which suddenly has this like this weight? And you know, and I mean, by no means do I think uh, writing a poem or or calling it something different can make it you know less of a suffering or less less um, difficult to bear. I just I think I also wonder is like how can I how can I take the energies, even the ones we consider negative energies, and possibly, you know, turn them into a type of energy that I can like kind of leap, leap forward with or spring forward with, and and so a lot of it just came from like God, like what if I quit calling it anxiety? Like what if it was something else? You know, what what could I be in it, or what could I do with it? So interesting to think about it that way, too, because isn't that in some ways like the instinct toward metaphor, right? Like that's one of the things that makes metaphor such an like affecting thing when you come across a metaphor that like like I would just describe to you um, that it can it can help you understand something by calling it something else. Right. You can understand it more deeply of that, like. I think every I think language is is a metaphor. It's 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 never it's never the body, but we do as much as we can to carry the body or we try to keep it as close to the body as we can. And so, you know, how how much more like is saying it's anxiety is also a metaphor. And so I feel like there's something very playful and exciting and and also like something that feels like freedom, like a field of sorts that you can run around in when when you realize like Oh, this is a metaphor for anxiety, but anxiety is also a metaphor for something else. Um, and so it f- I think it feels very freeing to me to, instead of treating it like a closed space, to kind of open the space up and just, you know, I know I can't get it, I know I can't say it, so I might as well say anything else to try to, like, get toward what I feel. Um, Natalie, I, I have a quick question because this is kind of... Um... I don't know if you think about this or not, but if you do, maybe you can just comment on it. Like, there's a medicalization of terms like anxiety and insomnia, and this clinical um, space that they occupy. 
And I know that you're you're Native American. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And and so I interviewed a woman who works worked at Standing Rock for a while. She's a doctor. Mm-hmm. And she now is uh, doing a project there on decolonizing medicine and trying to treat the illnesses of people who are suffering from diabetes and hypertension and alcoholism and drug abuse as colonial illnesses as opposed to um, illnesses of trauma that they can treat with traditional means or a community-oriented mindset. So she built a clinic, and at the heart of it is a kitchen. And um, and so I wondered if you might might be able to comment on like the way that words also have like a colonial reference and the repercussions of that and how reframing them or redefining them or just giving different words like desire is a form of resistance. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it, it's I think there's a huge uh there's a huge geography or landscape that exists between an indigenous language that was built on the land that the people live on and the languages that many of us use in our in our day to day um and i feel like you know and this is something that i think some people might not understand or might sound a little like you know woo woo or something but i think it it is important like when you say the words when you say like the words that have a, a real meaning to your body and words that have been shaped by your body and by the body of land or the body of water that you've lived on. Like, so when you think of, like when I think of Mojave and the words that we use, they're very connected to our lands and our bodies. Um, you know, and, and so it's hard to, uh, it's hard to forget either when we're speaking in Mojave. And so it, whereas when I use English, it, it's very easy for me to use it in such a utilitarian way that that lets the body fade from that or or that lets it move away from the body that it was initially meant to hold like even when i say things like desire or tenderness um or even violence i i think they're so far from from the the, the physical body um and so i i don't know i think it's decolonizing is is a word i th- it's one a word that i it I, it's not a word i use very often i'm not quite sure what it means i think i use it more in in kind of a a way of uh you know i think it's become such a currency but but i understand the intention there and and i think you know um i think it's the when we can when we can let the word remember its intention which is the body. I think that's when language becomes very powerful. And I, I think that's something, um, it's something I even chase in, you know, not just in an indigenous language or in, in Spanish, which I consider, um, depending on the type of Spanish, like I think Spanish has also become an indigenous language, even though it came from, you know, Spain, it's it's developed from the, you know, the land and the languages of indigenous peoples in, in the Americas. Um, but I, I think that, even in in English, I'm always trying to chase down. I think many of us are, like you know, anybody interested in etymology, you're always trying to find the word um, in its beginning, like when it was still very close to the body. You know, like that. Like anxiety is kind of funny because in its one of its early forms, it it was um, 
it also meant like it had like a an essence of caring like not worry but to care about something and I think that's interesting how we've even lost that or how you know even the word anguish again was so close to a body so close to um, a type of tenderness Um, and so I think it's you know, it's. I think it's tough because we're seeing our everyday language eroded in a way, and uh, you know, and I don't just mean by you know Trump and the government. I, I mean uh, by the way we use technologies. By you know, like even like like you were saying the medicalization. Like you know, the the actual words we use for medicine and for conditions are very close to their original forms. You know, they're all of these Latin and all of these words that that still hold the things they are in it. Um, Yet the way we we use things, I think the way we speak is sometimes forgetting that, you know, I'm one body speaking to another body about, you know, any number of bodies. Um, and so, yeah, it's something I, I think a lot about. And I, I it feels lucky, I think, to to have this relationship to my tribal language, which doesn't it doesn't yet let me, you know, because it's so new to me, but also it's still so close to the land it was formed on. And the people whose you know bodies and mouths it it came from, it's it's still so intentional, um, and that feels really important. When you say it's new to you, do you mean that you've learned Mojave later in life? Yeah, it's. I mean, I've been around it. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with with um, grandparents and great grandparents who spoke it, um, but my mother didn't speak it. And my father's side of the family speaks Spanish. And in, you know, where I grew up, it's also many different kinds of Spanish, depending on where people are from. Um, and I have grandparents from, you know, Zacatecas, but also from Spain. So, you know, we had lots of different um, different ways of, of Spanish in, in my family growing up. But yeah, I, I have learned it a lot later. It wasn't until I was... Um, it was after graduate school that I came back and began working with, you know, my elders, some of my relatives working on the language. Um, and otherwise I had lots of kind of street variations of ways to tease each other or ways to like say something that we thought was bad. Um, or, you know, I, I, I could understand a command or when I was getting chewed out or something, but I didn't, I didn't have the language, uh, in my body in the way that I do now. In your in your bio, it says you are a language activist. Can you talk a little bit about what that what that means? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are lots of ways of of activism now. I mean, I I feel like speaking Spanish as much as I can and whenever I can out in public. Uh, live, you know, being that I live in Arizona, that feels important to me. Um, but that feels like activism to me. Um, even, you know, like if I go someplace and, uh, you know, I'm with, like my partner doesn't speak Spanish yet. Um, <laughs> but when, when we are someplace and, uh, you know, we, we're speaking English, but we go up and, um, you know, maybe the person serving us or the person, um, you know, people who are there in the same space with us are speaking Spanish. It, it feels important to me to, to also speak Spanish, to engage in, in the language in that way. Um, and then there's also my my Mojave language activism, which I think people understand as activism a little more, um, you know, like they can recognize it as activism more readily because it's a, a language that's dying. Um, 
and you know or a language that has been silenced or you know whatever words we choose to talk about it but there's there are only a couple speakers left of the Mojave language and so I think part of part of that that I've considered activism with that in the past is just um you know learning to change my life in a way that I can make space for that language and trying to find ways to help other people you know change their lives in a way that that the you know, they can embrace that language and they can use it and be embodied by it um, as much as it, you know, will embody them. Because I, you know, America is a set of structures and that that were designed from and for, you know, the silencing of these languages. Like it, America works best when those languages aren't, aren't being spoken. Um, because soon enough then, the, you know, the bodies who once spoke them are are, will also be gone. And so that to me, like, you know, I feel like there are a lot of ways of activism. Um, but I think the one that's most recognizable is, is the indigenous language. But, but even I think speaking Spanish is a type of activism. Mm. Just to go back to the poem for a little while, I am um, really interested. I hope this isn't just like a too straightforward question, but I'm interested about the her that keeps reoccurring in the poem that comes back again and again. It starts, I mean, even in the first, like, the third stanza, I wonder a grief or a line of her, and then it comes back again. I want her green life, her inside me. And I just wonder what is, who or what is the her? Yeah, well, so this poem, it slips and slides a bit. It's, It's a little bit shifty. Um, I mean, the her here, it becomes, you know, it begins as the lover, but it also becomes, you know, what is anxiety? It becomes, you know, uh, uh, kind of the the placeholder or the, you know, the the figure of desire as it moves throughout. Um, I think uh, by the time, by the time we get to, you know, um, I am struck in the witched hours of want. It's like, at that point, it's as if the uh, the the anxiety has has become a new thing. It has become that that other thing that that her that beloved. Um, a lot of my work right now is is trying to trying to treat every body in every poem like the body of the beloved. And so um, that was it. Wasn't like of course an intention when I began, but it began thinking about a lover. Um, you know, a relationship that was a long distance relationship. And so I was, of course, you know, in my apartment here in Tempe and my partner was in New York and I was unable to sleep for, you know, a, of an, another night of insomnia. And that was kind of where my thought process was going. Um, and I, I, I was thinking that and then suddenly I realized as I was just kind of, you know, putting words down on the page that that I had even left the body of the beloved and found something beyond that and that I think is it was this kind of and that's where the image of the field comes in like the desire field it's like once you leave whatever shape or outlines of the body suddenly there's this this field this everythingness and that's where I feel that that's what I feel that the her becomes at a certain point um which is why it keeps morphing and it needs a new shape each time because it's, it seems, you know, it's, 
it's the vein, it's the wing, it's the thorn, it's the river, it, it's just moving. Um, and so it keeps becoming more. And that's, that's kind of the way it worked. And, and also with, with this poem and the, the series of poems that I'd written um, toward Ada, I also, I, I'm really interested in the idea of, of treating again everybody like the beloved and like that I wouldn't treat my friends any differently than I would a lover. Like in some ways my friends are, are my lovers. I mean, we, you know, of course, taking sexuality out of, of that equation, but to kind of, to realize that those, those loves are very similar, you know, even though we've compartmentalized them in so many ways. And so I feel like by the end of the poem, the, the friend has become, you know, the beloved has become, anxiety has become, this this kind of uh this field of this field that has no bounds uh you know no bound of body no bound of of geography no bound of land you know, this this term like beloved i i just listened to the interview that you did on commonplace with Roger Reeves oh yeah and, and i i remember just thinking about the, the reason why the woman i can't remember who Rachel Zucker, oh, Rachel Zucker. the reason why she was there was because you had coordinated a summit of uh, poets to write about love and that idea of love. And I don't, I didn't know too, I don't know too much about the project, but it just is so interesting to me that you would uh, want to think about this idea of love and the beloved and what that means. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and and tell us what is the term for love, or how how is that negotiated in Mojave? Yeah, well, I mean, we were always taught there was no word for love in Mojave, and and there there was no, there is no literal translation. I mean, I guess I guess at some point all all things become literally translated. They, you know, we will find the English version of of any word that exists. You know, we will demand it, um, and often, you know, on the reverse side the the English meanings or the English uh, inactions of those words are also exchanged and they are given to the peoples whose you know language was once translated. So translation always feels very dangerous to me because it seems like we're trying to find a way to say um, you know an indigenous word in another language, but I feel like what often happens is that bridge is then jam packed with the the other languages' meanings being kind of shoved upon the indigenous languages. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it makes sense to me that, that we, that my, you know, my ancestors, um, when they heard the word love and tried to match it to the actions of the people whose word that was, that, that it had no meaning to them, that it wasn't a thing they could understand. Um, when you think about the ways they've treated my people, it it must have been like unfathomable to imagine that those people could have anything like love in them, um, you know, like what we know love to be now in them. And so, my my Mojave people just never translated it. They it wasn't a word that they they um, that they wanted to or had to bring back into the Mojave language. And that makes perfect sense to me. I I think there are lots of things that. Um, that just don't fit 
as you try to move them. And so a, a word a word like love and what it meant to those people who were trying to give it to the Mojave people must have been so small. And it, it was probably very easy for the Mojave people to lose that word or to let it slip away. Um, whereas the ways that we express the things, the, the affections, the tendernesses, like the, the intentional um, carings, the way we express those and, you know, in body and the way we say them in Mojave, those ways are so large that I, there is no English word that can hold them. And so it's this interesting kind of scoping um, that happens. And, you know, we were always told growing up and and we were told this because at some point the, you know, the dominant language's narrative begins to have all the power. So, you know, our narrative was written by, um, you know, white Americans um, and even before them by, by you know, Frenchmen and Dutchmen and, you know, linguists who had come over to um, Germans who had come to study our language. And so it you know, we were told that we had no word for love and what that translated to for us was that, well, we must not express love. So there's this giant gap between what must have been closer to the actual experience of our ancestors to what we were taught since we grew up speaking English. And so suddenly you're like, oh, we don't have a word for love. Like, ah, we must have been like really bad people or we must, God, we must be pretty hardcore. Or, Geez, we don't even have a word for love. Like, what does that even mean about us? when really we had so many ways of expressing something much greater than than love. And I I feel like that's also one of the reasons why I'm very interested in it, is I feel like I realize that language is very prophetic. Um, You know, as as soon as you say a thing, I feel like you're very capable of doing that thing. Um, And as, you know, when when you're told that you are something you can become that thing um, for better and for worse, most often for worse. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's why it, love and and what that word even means or trying to find ways to break it or challenge it or, you know, pressure it, that it's been a preoccupation of mine on the page for, for the last several years. And that part of that is, is because I'm trying to find ways that that I can... I'm trying to find ways to talk about the things that I hope I'm capable of, that I believe I'm capable of, and that I also believe I'm deserving of. And I feel like love is love, tenderness, affection. Those are some of the like key words for me. Um, desire. You know, I think most most women in general, but definitely any woman who has been othered, whether they have, you know, they're differently abled, whether they are, um, you know, mentally ill, or whether they are. Uh, uh, you know, brown, black, POC, with all these different labels we put on ourselves. Like anybody, you know, like we've never been allowed to be, uh, you know, autonomous when it comes to pleasure. And like most of us don't even talk about it. And so I think I'm very interested in that idea. Like what does it mean to, one, you know, receive affection and to, you know, to experience pleasure, but, you know, and also what does it mean to be, um, you know, the giver of that, the giver of pleasure or to be able to, to offer tenderness to somebody else. Um, and, you know, and that, that little event was, it was at Housing Works and I had, it was, it was after, um, it was like, you know, 
after some horrible things happened in America, <laughs> some more horrible things had happened. And I felt like, you know, and New York is really a really hard place for me to live. So I feel like I'm always needing, needing my friends when I'm there. And uh, we just invited a group of people and asked everybody to write toward, toward love or the beloved or some version of that. And um, that's why we ended up there. And, and, and Roger, you know, Roger is someone who I consider a beloved, um, you know, a friend I met through poetry, but who has become so much more than that. Um, yeah. Natalie, do you feel like you have always as a writer, um, been writing in that vein? Or do you feel like it has more recently kind of uh, been available to you that um, writing about love and affection and desire. Did you do you feel like you've come to it, or do you feel like it's always been there with you? I think it's always been there. I, I think I have. I mean, one, I I know how to use the page a little bit more. I in in the first book, I, in the first book, I think a lot of people miss some of the the tenderness and affection and and love that happens. Um, I think because violence is one, it's like an expectation of some of the voices in the, in the poems. Also it, it, you know, there is violence there. And I think sometimes we have a hard time holding both, you know, what is violent and what is also tender, even though they exist side by side. And I think, I believe at least in every instance. Um, but I, I think I've, I'm also older. I mean, I've also changed and, I feel like the things I've learned of of love, of of friendship, of you know being a sister or a daughter, um, and some of those things I've learned in violent ways. I've I've learned so much more about family from my brother. You know, I've learned how to. I've learned some of the hardest ways of love I think from my brother, um, and yet there's still love, and so I think. You know, I I don't know that there has been a big shift in in my my access to it. I think some of that has just come with with like growing up a little bit. Um, and I think I had to had to do some growing up in poetry as well. I, I mean, I came to it very late. I had already had another career in basketball and in and, and, you know this linguistic work. Um, there's a helicopter going over right now. I wonder, Every time a helicopter comes by, I think, run! <laughs> I'm like, you can make it. Um, um, but can, yeah. you, can I ask you to talk a little bit about what brought you to poetry and, and how you came to it? Yeah, I, um, I've always been a, a reader, and my mother, my mother used to read to us when we were little. And you know, I grew up around storytelling, telling lots of stories. We were such a big family, and you know, it was like a, it was cheap entertainment to sit around and tell each other stories. And, you know, um, and my mom's a ghost storyteller, like she's known for, for her ghost stories, which I don't, I don't like to hear them. I, I'm like, I'm a big chicken. So her, I feel like her stories are real. <laughs> I'm like, no, that really happened. <laughs> that's not a ghost story. That's, that's something bad. Um, but you know, I grew up around story and I grew up reading a lot. I was a little, you know, I was either playing basketball or reading. Um, and, you know, and then I went on to do the thing I'd wanted to do my whole life. I, I knew that I knew that I was going to go to college and play basketball. Like I knew that that was going to be the way I left home. Um, you know, it's like, you know, Baldwin has the gimmick. He talks about the, you know, the gimmick and it was mine. Um, 
Like I, I just knew it was something I was good at. It was something, you know, people told me I was good at. You know, of course, I also loved playing it. Um, but by the time I got to college and then I, I played for a while overseas, I I felt a little bit more of the gimmick in it. You know, like I, I was good at it. My body knew how to do it. It's it's a it's a place of like um, of of a really lucky kind of freedom for me when I'm playing basketball, but it was also there was also more like I needed more I I wanted more I had more questions than basketball could ever answer and so um, just by chance I I was injured while I was training and I was supposed to it was such a crazy you know thing I had a contract to go back overseas and I tore my ACL. And I ended up staying to do my rehab um, at Old Dominion where I'd gone to undergrad. And I was just really lucky that I had, you know, just people who loved me. So my professors talked me into um, putting together a portfolio and and joining the program there. And my first semester, I was kind of like not even a formal student. And I took, which was weird now, I would never suggest this, but I took three workshops my first semester. I took a nonfiction of poetry and a fiction workshop <laughs> and I just I that was like when I I fell in love with with writing. I mean it sounds cheesy to say I fell in love with it, but I just beca- I was more. I mean maybe that's a better way to say falling in love. Like suddenly I was more than I than I had been yeah. and it was happening through writing. Um and I don't mean more like I was better or I I was but I I I wanted to know more. I was asking more. I was, I, I was being more intentional. I was, you know, I was able to, to access some of my interior, you know. And yeah, it was. It, I feel like it was just. It was kind of something I slipped right into, and um, you know, it doesn't surprise me too much in that. I mean, my life has been a few very different stages, but I, I feel like at home this is the way we talk. We talk in story. We talk in, you know, in, in, in a, I know sometimes we put a, this prestige on poetry that it's, it's so very different than the language we use every day. And, and of course it is, I think maybe if nothing else, at least like in terms of temporality, like it's a different time. Like we don't have the time. I don't get the time in a day that I get in a line of poetry, you know? And so, um, but yeah, I feel, I feel a lot of the time when I'm writing it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel a lot different than when I'm home talking with my mom or when I'm, when I'm talking with like my elder, it's like suddenly time is slow and I am more present and I am, I'm a better person or I'm more capable, at least more capable of being a better person, um, you know, in those moments. And, and that's what basketball I think once offered me, you know, before I, I found this next thing. You know, I've never come across a, um, Baldwin talking about the gimmick, but I'm so fascinated with that. Can you, can you explain just, you know, briefly? Yeah, what he is? talks a he talks a lot of, of he's well. He, there's one so he like I'm gonna actually find the book sitting here. Um, you know, he some of his essays have like different iterations, so sometimes they they come by a different um, title. But one of the things he was talking about was he he was saying that. The church was his gimmick. You know, that was a place he could go and be looked after and people were investing in him and, and you know, he was receiving attention and love and all of these things. Um, and he had mentioned that 
um, most of the most of the men and women in Harlem, their gimmicks were um, were music, you know, entertainment and athletics and sports. And so, um, you know, when I read that, I, I felt like I I felt like suddenly I knew I knew more about my relationship to basketball. Um, not that that was my only relationship to basketball, but I just knew more about maybe why it's something I I couldn't give my entire life to. You know, like I have friends who are still involved with it, who are still coaching, who are, you know, played, you know, up until they, you know, their bodies just couldn't play anymore. It, that was never, that was never the thing for me. Well, okay. Were you going to L- ask one more well, question? Well, I was just going to ask about oh, the Lorca. Lorca. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, c- could you talk a little bit about what Lorca, who, what role he's played in your development as a poet and in your life, and then the the line that you refer to in his in your poem. Well, like Lorca, I think for many of us is is important. Um, I, one thing that I think I early on that I that drew me to Lorca were his images, and I I think I didn't understand them at the time, but I felt them. You know that that uh, that simultaneity of what is like dark and light and shadow and and bright. Um, and I think what I was feeling were the things that I know now to be desire um, that I didn't know then. That's what drew me um, in the beginning. And but there's something that keeps me coming back to Lorca, and I think I think it's something that American poetry is so young that I think it doesn't yet know how to resist. And you know, like you can't be killed for a poem you've written in America. You know, like that won't happen to any of us, at least not yet. Um, and so I think we have a very different understanding of the gift of poetry and also the power of it. I mean, I think poetry has been used in movements, but I think to the extent that that it has been used and, and to the extent that its power has been recognized in other countries and movements, is it's very different. Um, and I think Lorca, like his poems to me, his and, you know, Miguel Hernandez, um, they're, those to me feel like very important poems of resistance. And it, I think the thing that I find most compelling about their type of resistance is that they have not forgotten desire in that. And we're starting to see moves toward it. I mean, I think it's it's happened, but I think as as like a movement, like, you know, this kind of generation of poets, I think many people now are writing poems that, you know, very um, forwardly say, I'm going to embrace joy, you know, and we're hearing more about like, you know, black joy is resistance or, or you know, um, love is resistance. But I think, you know, the fact that Lorca continued to write the poems he was writing and about the desires he had and the desires that, that you know, um, were a part of his life and that, you know, also led to, to his murder in some ways, I think, um, I think that's something that I just feel very you know, I feel almost indebted to, you know, I feel like in some ways, and, and I think, I think a lot about what is my inheritance and what that means. And I think, you know, it's easy with indigenous people to be like, yeah, your inheritance is diabetes, it's alcoholism, it's all of these things. But, but I also think I have a very rich inheritance that comes from my indigenous families. And, and I feel the same way about my my poetic family and you know I I do have family from Spain but I don't don't know that if I didn't have family from Spain I I still think I would be drawn to to Lorca 
and I still think I would have come to to this work um, and and found a part of myself or or a, p- a part of myself that I would like to become. And you know, in in this poem, in the lines in particular, the Verde que te quiero verde is uh, my friend Tomas and I, uh, Tomas Morin. We we've talked a little bit about well, he I mean he's translated the Heights of Machu Picchu by Neruda, but we've talked a lot about Lorca and translation and. And we, we, we start sometimes with uh, common lines, you know, lines of Lorcas that are very commonly translated. And this one is often translated to, uh, you know, green, green, how I want you green or green, I want you green. And, and we've both talked about how, how we feel like that's an inefficient or uh, insufficient um, way of, of, of trying to, uh, like free that line into another language and and so that line has been one I've thought a lot about and it reminds me in Mojave our word for green is also a word a word that can mean like bursting or eruption it also means spring um you know because it's it's that kind of green that that is like you know it it's impossible to say what that desire is to to be alive in that moment, I guess is one way I might put it. Um, and so that line has been spinning around and around in my head. And uh, Tomas and I have had several conversations about how we might translate it or, you know, what would be possible with that line and, and that whole poem in general. But um, but yeah, that's it, it finally came up here. And it, you know, again, like looking back, of course, I can constellate it now and say, yes, this is because, you know, desire and because of this... Um, you know, these beloveds who are in the poem and, and this this point in the evening and this point in insomnia where, you know, everything is something else and, and everything is more, you know, like every minute of insomnia after a certain point is might as well be a month, you know. And so that's kind of, you know, a small constellation of, of Lorca and how he appeared in this poem. Natalie, did you bring a poem to share with us? Mm-hmm. I always feel like a second grade teacher when I ask poets. <laughs> now, did you bring one for the yeah. class? Well, and I'm often like, <laughs> I'm often the one who's like, oh shit, I forgot. <laughs> but but I I did remember. Oh good. Um, yeah, and I um, this, this is, so this is a it's mm-hmm. from Jose Olivares's book Citizen Illegal. Oh yeah, this is a brand new yeah. book, right? It was yeah, just published brand- yesterday. Yeah, it's a. Oh, really? I, yeah. Well, yeah, I've had it for a little bit, so maybe it did. I don't know what his pub date was, but it was very recently. I think it just came out yesterday. Um, yeah, and it's from Haymarket Books. Um, and uh, I also recently reread this um, uh, Oscar Seta Costa's The Revolt of the Cockroach People. And um, there's a quote in there. I, I just want to read this before I read Jose's poem, because this is part of why uh, this poem means so much to me. Um the quote is, somebody still has to pay for the fact that I've got to leave friends to stay whole and human, to survive intact, to carry on the species and my own buffalo run as long as I can. And and that that quote has, it just feels so important and I've, I've been thinking about it a lot just in the context of thinking, you know, how many of us to, to become the things we, we want to become or to try to change the things we want to change or, you know, we have to we have to move so far away from our people and from our families 
and and what that means for certain communities you know in in this particular moment the, you know the mexican american community um and i know how that feels because i feel like uh the things i i want to do and the things i'm becoming uh they're harder to do that at home or i don't know if that would be possible at home but that is where my family is and it's where you know all of the things that i love and the, the largest pieces of who i am are there so um that's that's why i chose this poem um to read of of jose's so the poem is by jose olivares it's from his book citizen illegal my mom texts me for the millionth time the phone vibrates my mom buzzes my desk her love reaches me wherever i am which is usually unavailable my mom home with my family minus me might as well be my name it's our family's second house in Calumet City after the first was lost to anachronisms you can find my mom on the couch her shoes off her bare feet throb with her american ache her work will wake her in a few hours to frame a store my mom's work is turning sanitary into pristine but you already know my mom's work by its invisibility my mom shopping with you watching you spill mountain dew on her floors my job takes me away from home so i can build a bridge back to the living room where my mom rests her feet awash in the glow she makes so effortless it's impossible to tell the light comes from her own body what an incredible poem that is in, that is beautiful that is beautiful. I love that you you framed it in the way you did too, because I think that was that was also really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you All so right. Much. Well, I hope you both have a smooth as smooth as can be day, thank and um, yeah, I look forward to the next time we all cross. So. Yeah. Bye. Thank you so you much, thank Natalie. You. No. Yeah. Take gracias care. a ti. Gracias. Bye. Bye. Ciao. You can find a link to Natalie Diaz and Ada Limon's project Envelopes of Air at our website. KUT.org. This is Just to Say is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm Carrie Fountain. Thanks for listening. <laughs>